0: The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology creatives, Wall Street and the economy. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: Unless the world ends, and there may be a reset here, we may see a bigger reset in the markets, but at some point things do settle down. And if things settle down the way they should, and people are patient, they will make money in the stock market. That's been the historic pattern. And it goes back to the beginning. So that's what you, you want to believe. Good. Co- again, it matters if it's good companies. And then there will be markets where there are excesses and they pull everything up with it until, you know, just the shiny objects fly and everything else sits there.
0: Veteran market watcher Herb Greenberg on the need for perspective during 2023's banking panic. It's a hard discipline to adhere to right now, but one that has served investors quite well throughout history. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining us from San Diego is actually a fellow lapsed Miami man, Herb Greenberg of Empire Financial Research. You also know the very well-known Herb on the Street newsletter. He was a regular on CNBC, I think we cross paths there, and a veteran, veteran market watcher. I think, Herb, were you an actual bond vigilante back in the day? No, 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 not even close. (laughs) (laughs) How are you, sir? We're back. Risk, risk off. A
1: risk oh my on. Gosh. Risk so on. risk on which off. day is it? Well, which day is it? You know, it depends on the day.
0: We're having this conversation on Wednesday in the middle of the week of this surreal week that started off with everybody worrying about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, which as you documented was a very healthy looking, flush the 16th biggest bank in the country. And the next thing you know, it's in government receivership. And now this whole concern is spreading to all of the regional banks and everybody. You know, what would you characterize this in your history of following markets? And you've, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you go back to the nifty 50 or crash of 87 or Connell, <laughs> Illinois. What, What's the analog to this situation? Or as I've asked on a separate pod, what makes this bank run different from all other bank runs?
1: Uh, you know, well, first of all, You know, as people would say, it's a liquidity crunch. It's not a question of outright fraud or it's not a question of, you know, poor assets. It's not like 2008. Some people say it's not like any other real bank crisis. It just depends on who's doing the talking and the opining. From my perspective, it's the epitome of everything that came before it, meaning it is the comeuppance of everything that happened going into 2021 with all of the assets and all of the just sort of the ballooning of prices and valuations and everything we were seeing before the market burst. And this bank, unlike all others, when you think about it, you know, it was its own ecosystem. You know, if you talk to people who are customers there who, you know, got their funding there, they love this bank. Many people love this bank. This bank played a very important role in startups. You know, you can sit here and bash it as much as you want. Everybody wants to bash it. But let's be realistic. This was very important from the, for the startup culture, but it sure. became a victim of its own success. And so, you know, you had, unlike so many of the other regionals, there was just an enormous concentration of depositors here and deposits here that were, you know, people say, Jesus, this is the VCs that are, that are getting bailed out. No, this is average people who worked for lots of companies that had started as Silicon Valley customers. And were forced or required to have their their deposits there. Who thought their deposits were safe? As you think when you put your money in any bank, and they were um, suddenly finding out they may not get paid.
0: So let's let me let me take another example. Suppose there's a really flush and specialized. Bank in the Midwest that is really good at provisioning hog farmers. Mm -hmm. And heaven forbid there's a terrible hog flu and it wipes everybody out or there's a dust bowl type situation. The clients of this bank, the depositors, are overwhelmingly exposed to that. And they have cash flow considerations. A lot of them have working capital considerations. They need to pull money at the same time. Why would that be any different? I mean, it seems by design, a lot of these smaller regional banks are have concentrated or idiosyncratic client bases. Why should that be an excuse for something like this to happen?
1: Well, it's not an excuse. It's just, you know, you look at this and the difference is just that this is a bank that was built on, I mean, look, we, we can argue this, not argue this, we can go over this so many different ways. I mean, this was clearly, there was misexecution, mis- miscommunication in the age, and this is what's so important, in the age of social media. I mean, this is, You know, people talk about, you know, I was just listening to some guy talk about how people at this bank, and I don't think the hog farmers would have been doing it, though they could do it from their tractors. You know, people are on a bus going to a ski resort, you know, literally withdrawing their money from the bank on their cell phones. But more than that, you had social media where you could really scream fire in a very, very crowded theater and, and suddenly panic sets in. It's, you know, sell now, ask questions later. And that's one thing that makes this so different. And it sort of resets the bar on what has to happen with banks. Because remember, this is an interesting debate, on obviously, and people have been debating it now for days, is the moral hazard. Should you have bailed out or you know, made sure the depositors were made whole. And you know, I've seen the arguments, you've seen the arguments, we've read them, we've heard them on both sides. And the folks who say they shouldn't have been bailed out, you know, in isolation, they make sense. However, this is a real situation. You can't say it in isolation. And so you have something where the whole concept if there's something, I'm writing about this today. Actually, I actually have it in something I wrote today or that I'm writing a little later on, which is you have a situation where you're redefining what a depositor is, that a depositor has a business relationship with a bank and you have that business relationship and you expect things to work and the limits that insurance have, all of that has to be redefined. It's one thing to have deposits at risk. Deposits should never be at risk. Everything else should, but not deposits.
0: Well, you explained for the listeners, and uh, you know, we might understand the intricacies with the yield curve and everything, but it's not like they went and rolled this stuff, uh, depositor money into subprime falafel. They put it into what you would think is ultra-safe U.S. Mm. treasuries, or at least you know, mortgage-backed securities, which have most of the full faith and credit of the U.S. government. What, where did they blink? What went wrong?
1: They put them into a long date. Well, this is what the crazy part of, of the story is, you know, they put a lot of this into 10-year treasuries. Treasuries, when rates were low, remember a year and a half ago, when, or a year ago, when rates were just rock bottom, when they could have played it safe and gotten say a quarter of a percent on their money by putting it into short-term treasuries, they were like the rest of us. They suddenly put it at risk. But for them putting it at risk, would seem riskless because it was in longer term treasuries. But we all know what happens with any bond. A bond is great as long as you don't have to sell it before maturity. And they were making, say they were making one and a quarter percent or whatever they were earning on it. That was fine until interest rates shot up. And when interest rates shot up and their depositors, various people, you know, their depositors and others started putting money into other higher yielding assets, wanting their money to do something more than earn just a measly amount of money. You know, that has an effect and it just sort of feeds on itself. And suddenly you had this bank where the bank was forced to sell some of these bonds. And as they were, they were selling them at a loss and everything went upside down. And this is a bank I should point out that did not have at the period of all this, a chief risk officer. In fact, they never really disclosed There was no announcement that the chief risk officer was leaving X number of months ago. I think it was about eight months ago or so while all this was going on. Who knows why she left? What the real story there is, that's a great story. Did she leave because she didn't like what they were doing? Did she, you know, reaching for yields, as it is called, can be very dangerous. There was a situation I wrote about in 2008, and it was when Silicon Valley Bank was actually the hero. It was the conservative bank that Mm. did not reach for yield. There were these uh, securities called auction rate securities and corporations and customers of banks- They ate them up. They ate them up. They wanted them. They wanted them so badly. And it ended up being, this was an illiquid market and they ended up being an absolute disaster. The one bank that didn't do it was Silicon Valley Bank because they did
0: not want to reach for yield. But that was under, the Herb, that was under a different regulatory regime. Everything that followed the sins of- Subprime in two thousand eight and two thousand nine, you would think you could take for granted that a bank of this size and this heft and this base of depositors would be under some sort of simple stress test for not just you know cataclysmic depression slash tornado slash earthquake, whatever it is, but if there is a deterioration of the finances of your customers and they have to pull out cash that you have liquid securities that you don't have to take a loss on, how were they allowed to get out from under that? I don't know.
1: I I honestly don't know. And here's the reality. I don't follow banks. I'm like everyone else who's sort of watching this. I've seen this bank over the years because I've written about it over the years because I was in the Bay Area. But you're asking the right questions. I don't know the answers on this question. And I don't think anyone else does other than it crept up on people. And what I can say with great certainty is nobody had regional banks on their bingo card for the start of the next financial crisis,
0: Mm. assuming this is the next financial crisis, because we don't even know if it's the next financial crisis. Well that sucking sound at the beginning of the week and over the weekend did remind me of this metaphor I think Slate once asked what would happen if a coin-sized black hole were placed at the earth's center. It would just suck everything else into it. You would have a cataclysm across the planet and that seems to be the feeling when you have even one bank if it's made whole if the depositors are made whole as you saw on Wall Street this week everybody starts to take out analogous banks you saw First Republic, distressed Schwab's, others out there which have different idiosyncrasies and the game starts where you bring their stocks down and you force management to come out and say, no, everything is okay. Uh, all's quiet on the waterfront. And then there's well, this that's... back and forth between Twitter. I mean, what's new now is largely the critical mass of Twitter and everything else. And it's something that I can't imagine the Fed or the White House or anybody being able to control considering how many thousands of regional banks there are. Well, you, this is why,
1: you know, in theory, it's a good thing that this thing was stopped before Monday because it gave people a, a chance to pause and gather their thoughts. And so I think that at this point, the bigger question is, you know, what's the next domino to fall, right? And on one hand we have, as we speak today, we have Credit Suisse, some issues with Credit Suisse, which is a much larger international bank, you know, and then you have, you know, you have it in Europe and then you have, you know, you have to remember how this whole thing started. This didn't start with Silicon Valley Bank. It started with Silvergate Bank in my own backyard here in san diego which was a crypto bank and so but but it was smaller and it was able to return the deposits to its depositors uh silicon valley bank followed on the heels of that and what's very interesting you mentioned first republic bank and again under the guise that i'm not someone who follows banks but i've read a lot and talked to a bunch of folks who know a lot first republic by all standards, is just a very different type of bank. You know, it's a it's more steeped in real estate loans, commercial real estate loans. I, be, I believe. But what I found interesting, I found a chart. If you looked at the short interest in Silicon Valley Bank and the short interest in First Republic, you'd see that Silicon Valley Bank had plenty of short interest going back of, around a year, probably around the time as in, shor- started- as, in,
0: as in for our audience, our public radio audience, short right. interest is short sellers. Having interest in betting against the stock, betting that it will go down. Short
1: sellers, that's right. They were betting against it because remember, some of the things that we're hearing about now, they were public. They were in the company's filings. It's just no one was, no one or most people weren't reading the filings. Obviously, short sellers were. And they were seeing this change in what the company was doing and how they were investing their money at a time. When it appeared interest rates were starting, you know, as interest rates started to rise, you can see that the short interest was edging higher in the stock, which meant that people were betting that there was going to be a problem here. And as the months went on, what I find fascinating is you started to see stories written, you know, little bits and pieces raising questions. And you'd see some short sellers come out on Twitter and others start, you know, all the way through January saying, hey, this thing is a disaster waiting to happen. And the bank was saying, no, 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 everything's fine. Everything's fine. And, and I find that fascinating. Meanwhile, over to First Republic, short interest just sort of stayed the same. They, no one was making a bet on that bank because that bank, by all accounts, is a very solid bank with very conservative management and, you know, gets caught up in this because of where it's located and in California. And also, I suspect what it, what people suspect its, uh, its asset base is.
0: Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're joined by Herb Greenberg of Empire Financial Research, also the Herb on the Street newsletter. You've seen him on CNBC. Actually, you were one of the first bylines I remember reading on the Street.com. I was at Goldman and we took them public. And mm. I just remember you were a, an early pioneer of of writing on that medium. And I've read you in various publications. I think in Fortune Magazine, I've seen your syndicated column I saw it in the Wall Street Journal back in the day, the Wall Street Journal Sundays. You were writing for Market Watch. And of course, um, viewers can catch you on CNBC all the time. And we also have Miami in common. You're an esteemed graduate of the University of Miami. Herb, I have to ask you, and if you are going to cocktail parties this week or anything, or if people are buttonholing you, what would it cost for the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and the entire system in the United States to be completely insured, to have none of this kind of risk on a bank, whether you're too big to fail or you're small, what would it cost for them to say, all right, everybody's insured till the max? I have no idea. I have no idea. You're
1: asking a great question. I don't have any idea. And here's, here's the reality in the whole thing. And I don't mean to pass the buck, Robin, but this is the truth on this entire thing. Nobody can tell you how any of this is going to shake out. All right? Nobody. And everyone wants someone to say, hey, it's going to be fine or it's going to be a disaster depending on how you're biased, right? What we know is that there's enormous amounts of risks in the system. What we also know is people have made an enormous amount of money at times like this, when there's great fear, setting themselves up for longer term investments, which gets, by the way, missed in everything here. You know, we can sit here and talk about banks and talk about what just happened, but then we if we sort of roll it back and we start talking about what longer term investors are doing, they have a very different vantage here. If they're capable of not getting caught up in the noise, because right now there's a lot of noise. You know, if we had this, if we had this discussion on, we're having this on a Wednesday, had we had it on Tuesday, it may have been a different discussion because the news cycles are so short and the yeah. level of crises are so, you know, they're moving so rapidly. It's like the, the crisis de jour which is just, you know, again it's part of that's the result of social media and just, you know, everyone tied to every headline and everything out there. I sometimes say to myself, if you could just step away and, you know, as you sometimes can do and you just say, you know, I'm not going to pay attention for a week and I have my portfolio of stocks, how would I be? In fact, I've wondered if people who don't who are not on social media, who have their portfolios of stocks, they're not watching financial TV, they're just going about their lives. I wonder if how they've performed relative to everybody else who's caught up in the echo chamber and the noise. And I think this is a topic that just fascinates the living daylights out of me, especially since I've made sort of some changes in how I do what I do and what I do as someone who has focused much of my career on what's going to go wrong to sort of tilt it a little bit on companies that can do well. And I've had great joy actually researching businesses because in the middle of all of this the one thing I have found that I've enjoyed for the past year and a half is finding I call it real companies that make real things that provide real services to real people and in the process make real money and generate real cash flow, which basically means the real businesses, they're not caught up in the hype. Now those companies sometimes don't do as well. Their stocks, excuse me, their stocks don't do as well in the moment, especially when everything else is flying. These, you know, the stocks I'm talking about, the companies I'm talking about are generally very boring businesses. They're businesses. But remember, these are not the kind of things, the shiny, the new shiny objects that investors tend to gravitate to when they're literally clamoring for the next trend. When, When rates were so low, people had to go into whatever risk, they were forced to go into riskier assets than maybe they were even comfortable with because they couldn't take it any longer. And so, you know, while we talk about everything that's going on out there, I know there are people who are positioning themselves, they're watching some of these stocks get battered. And this is, you know, classically how, how some investors have made a lot of money if they were patient over the long term. But here we are in a market, just think about this, Robin, where we're so conditioned to sort of the trading aspect of it. And, you know, you're a news guy, I'm a news guy. You're, well, you're a newer news guy than I was, but I was raised as a news guy. I believe me, I get pulled into every headline. I get excited about it. Sometimes I have to pull off because that's not who I, you know, I'm not a journalist anymore, former journalist. But, you know, once once a journalist, always a journalist, and you have that DNA inside of you that you get attracted to the news. But sometimes, you know, remember, you know, there are traders who are just positioning themselves for the next trade, this trade, that trade. Then there are people who are just out there investing, buying companies for the long term. And I know
0: that's not what we're talking about here, but no, but it is. It is. I mean, I was going to pivot to this part of the conversation to kind of tease this out for our listeners. I'm looking at this chart. It always captures my eyes from Morningstar. It used to be the Ibbotson chart. I'm sure you've seen it. A dollar invested in 1926 in various asset classes before the crash of 29. The compound annual return of a dollar between 1926, or market returns, between 1926 and 2022. And this was a very eventful century. I mean, Cuban Missile Crisis, various nuclear threats, war, World War II, Hitler, uh, Gosh, you know, the Cold War, uh, the crash of 87, subprime, various bank failures, small stocks returned close to 12% a year, large stocks, 10% a year, a dollar turned to thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, you had to be patient. And that's the, pr- you had to be patient. And and by the way, you're
1: talking about a period of time over which met much of that time, there was no social media. There was no internet. You know, I I, as a journalist, was in the thick of it when the internet was being born so i was on both sides of the internet and i was able to watch and it, this whole thing evolve and how it impacted even psychology and the psyche of investors and you know the evolution of all, all that but yes what you're saying is the reality and you're also pointing to something else which is the average annual return of investments which <laughs> everyone talks about you know tripling their money every 5 minutes but it's that's not how it really works
0: I don't think people, you know, you double your money roughly at a 7.2% compounded rate every 10 years with the rule of 72. But you have to be in there. As, as Josh Brown and others have pointed out, you, you know the price of admission is this kind of volatility, and it's par for the course. We had a major sell-off last year. The markets ended down quite big. You have to sit in for the 2008, 2009 scenarios. If you look back at 87, you could barely spot it on a long-term chart, or even death of equities in the late right. 70s and early 80s, right. or various other things that happened. But here we are, just the couple weeks removed or a week removed from everything being so quiet on the waterfront. And I think it's just a rude reminder to people that this is a risk asset class, that things can and do fall apart. But of course, there's opportunity on the other end of that.
1: Well, that's the whole point, that there was a period, in fact, a newsletter that I'm coming out with today, the headline is risk is not a four-letter word. That's a phrase that I've used for years and years and years and years and years, just because when things are going nuts in the market, and I mean nuts on the upside, people don't want to hear about risk. People don't want to hear that there's a problem. If you're the guy who's reminding them that, you're not invited to the cocktail party you were just talking about. You know, no one wants to hear it until things fall apart and then they go, oh my, I should have listened. I was talking to a guy once who ran a, a short selling mutual fund and I and the market had fallen and I I called him and I said because this was open to retail investors, you know, regular, regular investors. And I said, you know, people must be thanking you and everything. He said, yeah, well, here's the problem. Everybody comes to us at just the wrong time. They want to buy into our fund after the market fell, not before it fell. And that's because human nature is human nature and people tend to follow the herd and they freak out after the fact, as opposed to positioning themselves before the fact. And you know, and then and, and the beauty of this last bubble, Robin, is that this last bubble caught everybody, including all the smart guys who thought they would be handing that empty bag to some dumb retail investor. As it turns out, everybody got smacked. And in fact, some of the retail investors, if they were smart enough, weren't there, but everybody got smacked, including the smartest of the smart, because of human nature, because of the greed factor, because of, and this is the crazy part, so many people, think about it, I mean, it's staring them in the face, thought this wouldn't end. I think there were people who genuinely thought, even back in November of 2021, and this I find fascinating, because I wrote about it, when the head of private equity at Apollo Group was quoted in Bloomberg.
0: As this is a saying, massive buyout firm. This is a massive private equity firm. Private equity
1: firm saying valuations on private companies, the kind that Silicon Valley Bank bankrolled and also owned you know, stock in and warrants in, that private equity valuations were delusional. They had reached the de- delusional level. And there were some stories on it. I don't know that it never made the biggest headlines. There was a headline in Bloomberg and maybe somewhere else. And I picked up on it, but that was a, that was a canary in the coal mine because you're watching people sit there and say, this is nuts. You know, people in the industry, people who could be paying these valuations and what they were doing is they were sort of like trying to sell one asset. They were trying to sell higher priced assets to the next guy. And, and at the end it's like a Ponzi scheme. It fails because you can't keep it going. And now we're in a market where, you know, when you, if you want to roll it back to Silicon Valley Bank, I would argue that Silicon Valley Bank, you know, one of the things that changed over the recent years is it almost the level of hubris where they became, you know, sometimes I think a lot of smart folks become insular and they become so close to their own world and they live in their own world. You know, we always joke about the Silicon Valley bros and the, and the culture of Silicon Valley and some of it became very arrogant where people just thought they were better than everybody else and they're not going to have problems. But the fact is, what Silicon Valley Bank was doing, as good as what it did for the startup culture throughout its history, in the end, it was also feeding that culture into the excesses. And here you have it in the end, for whatever reason, you know, you can look at the treasury securities, which is the key, the
0: key issue, their purchases, came back to haunt them, boomerang back, snap. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Please do stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and recommend us, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station, WVTF, Radio IQ News, across the great Commonwealth. You can message me to carry this show on your air. If you are just joining us, my guest is Herb Greenberg, esteemed market watcher. He is with Empire Financial Research, and he has the Herb on the Street newsletter. You've seen him in the pages of Fortune over the year on Watch, on street.com. Gosh, you're on CNBC lots. I got to ask you another question. When I speak with people who really came of age in the in the inflation of the early 80s on, on Wall Street, and there's Ooh. this complaint that there isn't an institutional memory, what is a hedge against inflation. It's a cosmic question almost. You would think that gold, if you're speaking to certain people, or oil or other things, help you against kind of the pernicious deterioration of of the decline of your purchasing power. And there was that famous business week covered, Death of Equities, of course, how inflation is killing the stock market. And then the stock market goes on to have arguably its best 18-year run ever. Is it possible that stocks, quality stocks, which give you access to those corporations' buying power and pricing power, hedge against inflation? Over
1: time, if you're willing to be patient. I hate to keep coming back to the same old theme, but I think it's not just possible. I think it's probable You know, I was having this discussion today with somebody about gold because I've heard, you know, there's some very interesting theories about gold and, you know, is gold ultimately still going to be a great hedge? And, you know, this person who is not a gold fan, you know, obviously felt it isn't. I know there's other smart people who think it's a great hedge, but I still come back to unless the world ends and there may be a reset here, we may see a bigger reset in the markets than we want to see, but at some point things do settle down and if things settle down the way they should and people are patient they will make money in the stock market that's been the historic pattern and it goes back to the beginning so that's what you you want to believe good again it matters if it's good companies and then there will be markets that, where there's where there are excesses and they pull everything up with it until you know just the shiny objects fly and everything else sits there but i i don't disagree with that assessment
0: we did have our lost decade at the turn of the century after the last time we had a you know and it seems it seems uh, penny ante that you know dot com bubble versus what we just experienced on the street with crypto and many companies sporting at least a trillion dollar valuation that this you know nasdaq five thousand pales in comparison and I used to read you in that vintage in that era, but after that the market had its the United States stock market had its worst its most muted decade since the great depression. And international really stood out. And meanwhile, I don't know if people ask you about this, but international diversification hasn't really done anything for anyone in 15 years.
1: No, it hasn't. And it's not, it's not a focus of mine in general, because I'm looking at domestic companies. Uh, what I do think is, is going to be interesting here is that stock picking, you know, you've heard this, but I think it's more compelling than ever. You know, even in periods of flat markets, stocks go up. Individual stocks go up, and this is where stock picking starts to shine, and where you actually can do well with the right type of stocks. I mean, I have a model portfolio, and in two different newsletters I write, that for some reason I say for some reason I know why, you know, have outperformed the market. One is a year old in a week, and the other is you know five months old, but they've performed. But they're again, they're not stacked with trendy things. They're they're selected, you know, based on quality. So I think that, you know, that's what's going to make this period different. I also think it's going to be an important period to think about something else people don't talk a lot about, and that is stocks to avoid. And, you know, when you're doing short research, I used to do short research, and we used to try to tell people, you know, you don't just get us to short stocks, you get us as insurance, because if we're writing about something, you want to fully understand why we're writing about it. And it might be, a stock that you don't want to own if you were thinking about owning it. That was always the the best thing you'd hear. Somebody would say, man, I own this stock and you guys came out with it and yet with a warning on it and I redid my research and I think you guys are wrong. Now, at least the person redid the research, but there's the other person who says, man, you guys came out with it and you kept me from buying more and then the stock fell. And so we served our purpose. They didn't short the stock. And I think now, I think it's going to be very important to look at stocks that just – You should avoid because there are going to be better stocks to own with less risk because the fundamentals are just that much better. Because I think fundamentals are going to matter. That said, in a market where everything can get shaken, but either you have to be willing to be in the market knowing it's going to be shaken with your long-term horizon, because the reality is when things settle down and things start to move up again, and I'm not talking about up the way they've been moving up lately. I mean, I'd love to have seen a washout in the market. A true washout where things stayed down and just stabilized, because I think that would have sort of wrung out the excesses. But when things go start going back up, and whether it's five months from now, or five years from now, or ten years from now, if you're not there, you miss it, and that's the
0: dilemma. I got to ask you: is is there something about March and the <laughs> Ides of March? If we think about, if you you know, I had me thinking because you cited this chart from uh lash Capital LLC that just took the path from peak to trough in the dot com bust. You know to refresh everybody's memory at the turn of the century March of 2000 it was a it was a heady time it was before Twitter it was well before smartphones I mean a handful of people had blackberries the stock market which would go on to collapse nearly what 45 50% over the next 2 years that drawdown I mean you had an initial 27% fall as you pointed out, followed by a 19% rise, followed by a 26% fall. Then you're up 22%, down 32%, up 21%, down 19%. That whiplashing volatility on route to the market doing nothing over a decade. Meanwhile, it fast forward to the period after that lost decade. I am on a train to DC with none other than Jack Bogle, founder of the modern index fund. And this is as the bottom was the market was bottoming out in subprime. There were fears that Citigroup was being allowed to fail. It was mid-March of 2009, and he's saying to me that This is the obverse for him of what the turn of the century was, that he says, you know, even if we're all going to be eating dog food or the market's going to go up tremendously from here. And I wouldn't bet against the United States going up tremendously from here. My question to you is you said this is a a discriminating kind of stock pickers environment. There's a whole school of thought that says don't bother with that. The best you could do. The best mousetrap is just be the market. Don't try to beat the market, i.e., the S and P 500. But then I think about the S and P 500, and it's precisely what's overweighted with exactly. these big tech and technology and financial firms. Surely there is a better mousetrap than that, passively. Right. It,
1: it, well, no, I think that this is one reason why stock picking will actually or should shine. Because first of all, a lot of people never understood. You know, you're in the market. I get it. Jack Bogle was genius. You interviewed him. I interviewed him many times back before anyone knew who he was or cared. But I think that the reality is it is the market and you put your money in. And a lot of people, I don't think, realize that what goes up can go down. And if they're in the market, they will go down and they will not outperform the market. And I think they don't have a chance to. Stock picking is harder. It's, you know, it's not, you know, for the faint of heart. That's why you would have an index. But I think if you look at the index and you go down and Kalish, Concepts actually had some good data on this very recently, that if you go down and look at the stocks at the bottom of the index, you know, there are many stocks that just, you know, or they're not in the index or they're not in that index. And there was actually one with the Russell 3000 that if you go to the Russell 3000 and you go to the bottom of the index, there are stocks that are very good companies there. They didn't get pulled up because they weren't weighted as heavily. And so that's where, you know, people who use, say, quantitative research, who are using the numbers, you know, who can slice and dice using their computers to slice and dice the fundamentals combined with performance and things like that. I think they're finding great opportunities there. Again, assuming that the fundamentals are good or show they're going to be good. And even today, if you're looking at certain companies today, I would argue there are companies that look expensive, but they may be in industries that are going to benefit three years from now. So you have to get in there now to participate in that, knowing that, again, there are cycles and they're going to get hit. You know, you can't time these things, Robin. That's the one thing I've learned. You know, I used to, you know, as somebody who's, again, doing long biased research, you know, I'm talking my book, but I'm also looking at it real time. And I sit here and know that we're looking out there and I'm finding companies. I mean, I'm, you know, I love finding these companies that no one's paying attention to, that, are there for the the taking. And this is this whole thing about the efficient markets. You know, people claim, you know, oh, it's an efficient market because all the information in the market is there, so it's priced into the stock. Well, if that's the case, why am I finding so many companies Either on the long side, you're finding companies that are totally underpriced. That's like a value stock. And some people say value investing is dead. But, you know, they are low value stocks that sit there because all the information isn't in the stock because everybody's focused to the biggest stocks. And on the short side, you saw these companies were absolutely overvalued. There was not just enough information in the market.
0: I'm not playing dumb, but you think with all these hedge funds out there and split second pricing and and the tools they have at their disposal and the flow of information that there's still so many inefficiencies or unturned stones in this stock market?
1: Yes, because there are plenty of people who A, aren't doing the work. You know, if you own more than 10 stocks, it's hard to really keep up on them all. Let's be realistic about that. And what I found you know, selling to the hedge funds is a lot of people give lip service to being original thinkers and to doing original work. And, you know, as a journalist, I was always thrilled to find the idea that nobody else was talking about. Let's say it was a short idea and it didn't have high short interest, meaning there weren't many people short the stock. To me, as a former journalist, I look at it and go, bingo, there's the scoop. But the average hedge fund manager, because historically heavily shorted stocks tend to perform as a short better than less heavily shorted stocks, they often would go where their friends were. And it still worked that way where it was word of mouth about what to buy as opposed to actually doing the work. I was always surprised by that. Not that people didn't do work and didn't do fantastic work. There are brilliant people in the hedge fund industry. But you know, I know that we would come out if we came out too early on something. People didn't want to know about it. That created, to me, an inefficiency in the market. I mean, there's a company I follow called Dole. A lot of people know Dole because they buy their fruit and vegetables. It's the largest fruit and vegetable marketer in the world and grower in the world. And the company came public during the peak of the market, which is like the worst possible time it could come public. People think of Dole as a different company than it used to be. So when the company came public, people just like shook their heads. They didn't want to know. It created a great inefficiency in the price. And the price is still low relative to where it could go and relative to what anyone paying attention would see because there's some very good information in there. But it's just not a talked about stock. It just doesn't get the headlines. Remember, remember, think about it. People, you turn on TV or you look in in the newspaper and what do we know is a journalist, they're going to write about or talk about the most popular names just because they get the most eyeballs. If you talk about some obscure company, if, especially if there's no news there, it's just, hey, this is an interesting company, You know, people's eyes will glaze over or they won't click on it. You won't get the eyeballs, which is something I learned way back. I remember I was at MarketWatch and this is way back, well, where it was 2007 or whatever. You know, internet's still percolating along. And I, I used to write a column that would be in the front of MarketWatch and I'd write about some things that would fall off the page. And i go, wait a minute, where, where's my column? How did it fall off the front page? I'm the main columnist. And you know what happened? They say, nobody's reading it because it was about a company that maybe a small group of people, you know, you're talking to your sources and they're all excited about this company. So you write about it, but nobody else cared about it. And that's where you learn, I first learned the lesson that you're not gonna make it in this business if you're not necessarily writing about the companies people wanna hear about. And that said, some of the great frauds, whether it's like a wire card or some of these other companies that have blown up, big European blow up, they may not have made the grade until ultimately the stock started to move. A lot of it then relied on the stocks moving, and and then that creates a headline and a self-fulfilling prophecy.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Empire Financial Research's Herb Greenberg. Herb Greenberg is a veteran uh, market watcher. He's even written for Market Watch. You see him often on CNBC. He's closely following, uh, the I guess, the Ides of March, if you will, and everything that's gone on in the wake of Silicon Valley Bank. In the ten minutes or so we have left with you, Herb, I want to turn it around and talk to you about what's working for you as a content maker. You're at this very desirable nexus of, of you know, past life in journalism, but also an investor, a person who gets excited turning these stones, a value investor, a person who sought out fraud back in the day or or, or red flags. What works? Is the newsletter kind of front and center right now? Twitter is clearly a, a fire hydrant, which is very difficult to sip from in an efficient way. You're on LinkedIn. You have people who opt in. Can you comment on that?
1: It's a really interesting question, Robin, and it's one I wrestle with every day because I have multiple masters. One is this Broader, I work for Empire, which is a paid newsletter. You know, has retail investors, and they have you know quite a few. Uh, we're part of a bigger company, but they have quite a few investment newsletters. And that business, I think, is harder right now because you know individual investors. Do people want to own stocks? And you know, one of our messages is this is the time you should be looking. Obviously, um, there are good opportunities out there. I think of. I've been watching my LinkedIn newsletter gain traction. It's been very interesting. I, you know, I haven't spent as much time on it. I write that also for Empire. So at Empire, it's called the Empire Financial Daily. I did repurpose it as the um, Herb on the Street because that's been my newsletter for years. But what's interesting is I've been working it a little more, a little more like the I would say the old me in the sense of just having a little more style, a little more edge. Paying more attention to it, and people seem to like that. The issue I I wrestle with is that there's just so much content out there. There's just so much content. Everybody has a newsletter. It used to be like everybody had a blog. Everybody has a newsletter. There's information everywhere, so you're competing with that. That said, you know I've toyed with other things, with you know you know looking at expanding the newsletter and. You know, actively thinking about it, uh, knowing that I, you need a certain element of content to make it work, you know, so to be monetized. I think there's definitely a market. I think there there are people, not many, because I think a lot of people write these newsletters, they go on Substack and they just find it's harder than it looks. Um, a lot of people have an exceptional content on Substack, but it's hard to read because they're not great writers. You know, because a lot of these people say they're from finance, so they're very good as academic writers or as finance writers. But they talk over most people's heads, and so uh, it's one thing. You know, I'm pretty good at not doing. <laughs> uh, so I, I think there's an interesting opportunity. There still are interesting opportunities there, even though there is a plethora of, you know, just so much inf- I keep saying so much information, a fire hose of content. But I've been been just watching with the LinkedIn. Just how it's it's been working and gaining traction as a freebie, right? Anyone can can get it. it; doesn't cost any money if you're on LinkedIn.
0: Well, the other thing is, I used to I used to think about research, especially at the turn of the century, when it was kind of you know former Elliot Spitzer went after Wall Street for its uh, you know dishonest research or investment banking driven research. It used to draw. I mean, th- it was a loss leader for brokerage firms and wirehouses, and you would ideally draw trades to the place. Is there a way to make money? In research, selling value added kind of market handholding or stock tips, has that, has this kind of micro market and substack kind of showed itself to you as being the way of doing this? Or do you have to necessarily join a hedge fund or a buy side shop? Well, I don't know.
1: Look, I came at it from an institutional research firm that I co founded, and I've had two of those. And uh, the last one, which I just, you know, Rightly or wrongly, walked away from it right before the market fell. That business was getting more difficult. But again, we were selling short research into a, into a market that people didn't want short research. I'm sure that's changed. Uh, but that was still becoming a a different type of a market. The one I'm with now sells a lower, pro- somewhat lower priced product that goes to ins- individuals. That is that business is still there, but it certainly. Faces the challenges that come with, you know, the cost of customer acquisition with marketing. We we have marketing lists, and I can tell you that that is not, you know, that's something that has to be refreshed. It's something I'm learning about. Uh, It's kind of fun to learn a new business at this stage of life. And then the people who are on Substack, that's all word of mouth. I mean, you're basically at that point, you've got to be actively out there marketing yourself, and that's easier said than done. So. I think, but I think it all. I think there's a place for everything, and I think some people and some products always will break through. Some messages will break through. You know, in our business, we do these these promotions. Sometimes they're over the top. Some would say too much hyperbole. Promotions where you come out and you know these are like they're almost like um, they're like infomercials, and and we come out and you're being interviewed, and they're very slick and they're very good. And the idea is to try to get a message across. And uh, there's a certain part of the market that likes that, that actually watches those. And I've been intrigued to realize that that exists. But that costs a lot of money. A lot of money goes into these uh, to try to market that, that information. But what's key is what's the content? You know, how good is the content? And you have to have good content, but it has to be accessible content. Meaning, in my estimation, it has to be content people can read. They enjoy reading. There's an entertainment value to it. You know, I've always written with a style of humor, a little bit of humor, s- subtle humor, and you know some s- different types of uh, you know uh, self-deprecating stuff going on in there, just because I think it makes you real. And that's been my style. But the world has changed. I certainly can't do things the way I used to do them. I don't want to do them the way I, I used to do them. So I think in answer to your question, I think there's room for everything, a lot of different elements. And right now there's a there's a process of sort of ringing out to see what's going to work next.
0: In closing, uh, close us out with how and when inflation ends. Maybe you're not thinking about this at all. Maybe you're just saying this is, you know, I'm, I'm going about my plan, my strategy. But up until five days ago, everyone was fixated on this impossible battle against, the, you know, the Fed against inflation that's hurting all of us and the markets. But then you listen to people who will give you every reason inflation is falling, it is ending. They'll give you every indication
1: of prices that are coming down. Look, I live in California. I can tell you one thing. The price of gas I put in my car is not coming down. The price of natural gas that goes into my house is barely going lower. When I go to the grocery store and I'm a very good shopper or I go out to a restaurant, I can tell you out in California the cost of going out to a restaurant is still 30% plus higher than it was Pre-COVID, that is not. And by the way, I always ask with restaurant owners, what's going to happen? Because are they going to roll back their prices even when their input prices come down? Or are we at a new high, a new level there where they will take the margin and just run with it as far as they can? So I don't know what breaks it short of people stop buying less and things start, you know, you just have this readjustment from in the entire supply chain.
0: Does that readjustment necessarily have to be an outright recession? Does it matter? Is it just semantics at this point or a slowdown is a slowdown? Again, I think it's a slowdown is a slowdown. Look, I'm not a banking expert. I'm not
1: an economics expert. I know that I've heard it all and I know enough to know having heard it and read it all that the answer is yes. The answer is no. Meaning what's going to happen is going to happen. There's no right or wrong answer to this because, you know, it's a, yes, we've been here before, but it's a different period of time. And, you know, I know people who could be looking at, you know, trucking data and the trucking data can say, hey, there's not going to be a slowdown. Other people look at the transportation data and say, hey, there's, there's a serious slowdown going on here because, uh, you know, shipments are falling. So I don't know the answer to your question. And I like to be, you know, I, I don't want to sit here and try to I think it's important to say when you don't know the answer. And I think right now, a lot of people are claiming they know the answer to something which, as I said, is unanswerable.
0: So stop worrying and learn to love the market, I guess.
1: Just
0: stop worrying and and try to live,
1: you know, (laughs) Try, try, try try to enjoy your life because, man, hanging on every twist and turn of the market every day, that is a sure recipe to a fairly unhealthy life.
0: Herb Greenberg, veteran market spectator, market watcher, market participant, market handholder. He is at Empire Financial Research, and you can, of course, read his newsletter, Herb on the Street. Thank you so much for joining us. Consider it always an open invitation to come back on Full Disclosure, sir. My pleasure. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and recommend us, is FullDRadio.com. Again, FullDRadio.com. A shout-out to our listeners on our home NPR member station, WVTF Radio IQ News, across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Message me to carry this show on your air. And do not forget to catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening back with you next week.